As we get started, I like to begin with a prayer. I always like to pray, at least by myself, when I begin a study. So will you join with me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, I pray the prayer that David prayed, and that is, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rocker and our redeemer. Amen. So tonight, I want to talk about one verse, basically, and that's going to be Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And that verse goes like this. It says, from then on, referring to Jesus, um, he began to proclaim or preach, and in the original it says, and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Not a long verse, but it has actually a tremendous amount of meaning. So as we get started, I want to uh, just say that um, eventually David's going to be getting the taking over the Grove series for the year. And he in, intends, from what I understand, like he said in the spring, is that he preached on Acts 1 and 2 for the last nine weeks on Sunday mornings. And then he's going to pick up with Acts 3 and probably get to maybe Acts 15 or so, somewhere around there by the end of the end of the season. And so if you remember two weeks ago when he preached, he preached on Acts 2 and focused on verse 38 of Acts 2. And in that, if, in that scene, if you remember that Peter has preached, is preaching his first sermon he'd ever preached. He's probably the best preacher I know that preached a first sermon like that. Um, but it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he got to the climax of his sermon and he, he was asked, what should we do after they heard the gospel? Because his basic sermon was to talk about the, why they were, people were telling the gospel to them in their own tongue and, and what that meant and what the significance of it was. And they told them the gospel and, and he, he confronted them with their culpability or their responsibility for the death of Jesus and then they asked him, this says they were quick in their heart, asked him, what should we do? And he said that they, well, this is what they should do, that they should, they should repent and be baptized, each one of you, for, um, <clears throat> into, or actually on the name of Jesus Christ, in, into or for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest three disciples, part of an inner circle with Jesus, understood when he thought about what, what was it that Jesus really came and wanted people to do, he came up with um, two key things. One was to repent, and then the other was to be baptized. Um, and that that repentance and baptism lead to forgiveness of sins and to the gift of the Holy Spirit in their lives. God living within you. So, what I want to really focus on in its way is in this verse of seven, verse 417 is what exactly did Jesus mean by repent, which was part of the, the core of, of his message. So if you look at that together, first thing I'd like you to think about is uh, if you think about this is sort of towards the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. In fact, Matthew has this sentence that I read from Mark 4.17, be the very first words that Jesus speaks as he begins his public ministry in the Galilee. 
And then if you look at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, and if you want to turn to that, it's going to be Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And I'm going to the end of the chapter. Jesus says to his disciples, the last words he says are, um, all authority on, on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, or, go therefore, and um, make disciples. Literally, in the original, it would be after going. It's the first thing, after going. Make disciples. And then he tells us by two participles in the, in the original language, how you make disciples. By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by teaching um, teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. And so um, there's a sense of, at the, at, in, that God, in, that, in those verses, that we can almost look at these two verses, really, and they provide sort of a window frame upon how to look at the gospel and the ministry of Jesus and everything that Jesus was about um, between those two things. That they're summarized first by an introduction, and then concluded uh, with Acts, I mean with uh, Matthew 28, the great, the, the great commission. So, this verse is really important. And um, we need to look, first of all, at understanding, to understand it, we need to look at this context. So, um, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4 and look back at verse 12. And I'm just going to read a, a few verses to you. It says, now, now when Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned, he went into the Galilee, or into Galilee, and while in Galilee, he moved from Nazareth to make his home in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled, land of Naphtali and land of, uh, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light and on those who sit in the region and shadow of death, a light has dawned. So, the <clears throat> first thing we should notice is, is that the occasion for Jesus to begin his public ministry is that John the baptizer, John the Baptist, had been arrested by Herod Antipas and put in prison. And so when that happened... Um, Jesus had been baptized by John, had been tempted in the wilderness. We think there probably was a year, as much as a year between that, those events and between what now is happening, uh, his arrest, that Jesus decides that it's time for him to remove himself from where he was, probably in Judea, and go to the Galilee. To, and he does that, uh, and, and not just to go to the Galilee, but he also moves his base of operation from his hometown in Nazareth, about 35 miles away, to Capernaum. And Matthew tells us he does that in fulfillment of an Old Testament scripture from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. I'd like you to look back one step further, though, to understand what's happening in this verse. And that's to go back to chapter 3, verse 1. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It's the hardest thing to do is to turn a page. <clears throat> In those days, John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God, or heaven, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven is near or has come near. 
And so <clears throat> what I want you to see is, first, next is that the same summary message that we are given by Matthew for John's ministry of his message is the same one that John the Baptist had. So, so you think about that. So John, so Jesus, in a way, is just continuing the message of John the Baptist. And if we read further in, in, um, in Matthew 3, beginning uh, in verse 3, for he is the one about whom the prophets had spoken. This is speaking of John the Baptist. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing made from camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his diet or his food consisted of locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem as well as all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him and he was baptizing them in the Jordan as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, produce fruit that proves your repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one coming after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clean out his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the storehouse, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. When we look at what, what Matt, way Matthew does, or he organizes, he gives us a summary of what John's main message is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, or has come near. And then beyond that, he then gives us further information as he goes along to, to give us some understanding of, of how John understood that. And so I want to point out to you, especially verse 8, when the Sadducees and the Pharisees are coming to him, he's and he confronts them. He points out to them <clears throat> that repentance requires evidence or fruit. That's an important thing for us to look at as we unpack this verse. So let's let's dig a little deeper and a little more forward into chapter in four, chapter four, excuse me, chapter four, verse seventeen. So <clears throat> first of all. It says, in, it begins with the phrase, from, from now on. And it, in, that, that indicates in the original that, that this is the, going to be what Jesus does from now on. That his message is consistently going to be, in wherever he goes and whatever he teaches, it's consistently going to be a call to repentance or a command to repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So we need to understand that this is, that Matthew is saying that this, this 
if you were, if you were to go to hear Jesus preach, let's say you could go back in time and you were at the, going to hear Jesus preach, what could you expect to hear? You could expect to hear him say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So it behooves us to understand exactly what that means. So let's, let's think about that for a minute. Um, <clears throat> the first thing is that the, he says that the, that the kingdom is near, and he uses a tense in, in the original called the perfect tense, which, which can mean something like this. It means that an action happened in the past that continued in the, into the future or into the current times, or and what, a better way to understand it, or as some scholars think about it, is think, think of it as um, in your face. So let's, let's imagine you have a bookcase full of books. And you, are in, you walk into, your, into the room with the bookcases, and you look at the bookcase, and you see the whole bookcase. You can see the whole thing. That's, that's one way of describing it. And then if I look a little closer, I can see one shelf on the bookcase. I can identify, you know, on that bookcase, I have all, all my favorite novels, for instance. And then I can focus in on my very favorite novel, one particular book on that bookshelf. That's the focus. It's so when it uses that tense, what the author is doing, what Jesus is doing, is he's saying, this is really important. It's kind of needs to be brought from the, just a general view to an extremely close in focus. So he's trying to say, repent in a way, for the kingdom of heaven is right upon you. It's in your face. It's right here. And that's an important thing to understand. So what is the kingdom of heaven? The, the kingdom of heaven is a euphemism for the kingdom of God, because the Jewish people, even today, Orthodox Jews, do not want to say the name God or the name of God because they think it is, it is to abuse that name and to show disrespect. So they will use euphemisms, like for instance, and you, if you were to pick up a, Hebrew, a Jewish Bible of the Old Testament and you, that's Orthodox, you would read instead of when it says, wherever it says God, it might say Hashem, which means the, the Hebrew phrase, the word, the name. Or you might see G and then the O missing in D because they will not, they don't want to pronounce it because they don't want to disrespect God. So in, in Matthew, which is a gospel written to a very Jewish audience um, in part, Matthew is sensitive to that. So instead of using the word God like Mark does, he uses the word heaven where God dwells so that it's not so offensive. So he says the kingdom of, of heaven and what is a kingdom, the kingdom of God? It's where God's reign is before you. It's where God is ruling over an area. So, so what Jesus, when he says that the kingdom of heaven is near, has come upon you, it's right in your face. It means that it's going to mean that God is going to start ruling directly over the world. And that when God rules directly over the world, things are going to change. John the Baptist uh, uses some of that language imagery of an axe being at the, at, a, at the root of a tree ready to be chopped down to kind of give us the picture of what is meant by that same idea. You know, the, the destruction of the tree, the death of the tree is upon it. Or in a harvest where you, 
they would, you know, gather the wheat. They would still have the chaff around it, the husks around it, other things that you can't use to eat with unless you are needing a lot of fiber in your diet. Um, <clears throat> well, what you do is you take that to a threshing floor, a place that's just below uh, where the wind can blow across, and you, you recognize that you first run it over with a sledge to break it apart. It's a, a rough a, a board with rough stones in it that cut into it that break it apart. And then you take a, like a pitchfork, a, sh- a special shovel, and you throw it up in the air. The wind blows, as the wind is blowing, and it blows the chaff, which is lighter, away, and the grain falls to the ground. You keep on doing that until there's no more chaff to blow away. And then you have cleaned it away. The chaff will usually scatter over and pile itself over in a distance. You sweep it up, and you throw it into, as he says, unquenchable fire. And the point is that John made is that, that the moment of the kingdom of God coming or kingdom of heaven coming is one of great decision and change. Think about it like this. In the ancient world, when a new kingdom was appearing, it meant that it was preceded by an army that conquered. And when an army conquers a land... It brings devastation and change. That that means that you must react or be destroyed. And so for Jesus and John to say and make the end, for Matthew to declare and Peter for that matter to say that the, you know, that the God's kingdom is, is upon us, at least Matthew is in this. And by the way, Mark in his gospel says the same thing when he begins the ministry of Jesus in the, in the Galilee, he says that um, Jesus began to say, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Um, so it's the same constant message. And we should understand that. So, so let's think about that. And that leaves us with the word repent. And it, and it has a, it's a difficult word to translate. The, the original word in the Greek of the New Testament is the as a form of the Greek verb metanoiao, um, or metanoia. It's a it's a compound word. It's made up of two parts. The well, first part being meta, and if you remember your, um, I guess sixth grade biology class or maybe earlier when you learned about what happens to caterpillars, when caterpillars turn into butterflies, and that process is called anyone know? Metamorphosis, right? Meta means change, and morph means body. So metamorphosis means to change your bo- the change of a body from a caterpillar to a butterfly. So the first part, meta, has the meaning of change. And the second part of that word, metanoia, oh, so noi, it comes from the, the Greek root noium, or noon, um, <clears throat> N-O-U, N-O-U-N, noon, pronounced noon, not noun, um, is the word for mind. And it's not just uh, your thought life. It means uh, the mind in the, in the Greek language means not just uh, your thoughts or where your thoughts come from, but to have a mind means to wait, that you see things in a certain way and that that seeing and perceiving and thinking about results in action. 
and results in the way that, so that's, it's thinking and seeing that lead to behavior and action. So <clears throat> literally the word means a change from a change in the way you not just think and see things, but how you act and live. It, it, in, the, in the Greek world, the way, the way your mind works determines who you are. So it's a change in your, in a sense, who you are and who, in your being, your identity and everything about you. <clears throat> okay, so we need to have a little bit of digression here because when it came time to translate that word into English, it caused all sorts of problems. And um, it starts in the fourth century with a guy named Jerome. You may have heard of him, also known as Saint Jerome. And in, in the fourth century, Jerome, Jerome, who was um, decided, he was tasked with, with translating the Bible from the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and the original Greek of the New Testament into a more contemporary first-time Latin, um, which became known as the Vulgate and the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, <clears throat> well, when he was tasked with that, when he came to this word that we just, I just talked about, metanoia, or, and it's in its, no, its noun form, which is metanoia, he decided to translate it with, the word, with a phrase that means in Latin, penance. I don't know if any of you are former Roman Catholics or Roman Catholic even now, but um, in the Roman Catholic Church, um, penance became one of, the, of their sacraments. And it developed as a means of saying that, you know, you go to confession to the priest and the priest, you, you confess your sins and the priest gives you certain things to do. And then by doing them, you earn forgiveness. <clears throat> so, the Catholic Church then began to use these verses about repentance to, as, a, as a justification for their belief in penance. Jump ahead to the 16th century when the Protestant Reformation was happening. And there was a guy named William Tyndall who was sitting in Germany and Europe and he's making the, the first really complete and solid translation of the Bible into English the Bible that we have today. His Tyndall translation will be smuggled into England and um, it'll be burned and destroyed. It'll be fought against by the church and um, it'll be important to the Reformation. Later on, the King James Version will depend 80% of its translation upon Tyndall's translation. So when Tyndall gets to these verses and he is seeing metanoia, he doesn't want to translate it like another... Protestant before him, John Wycliffe, had translated as to do penance because he doesn't want people to think that this passage supports the Catholic doctrine that we can earn our salvation by certain acts and behavior. So instead, he makes a choice, a decision to choose for this word, the word repent, which is a word in archaic or old English, which means to feel sorry for. And at the time that he makes the translation, a lot of Protestants around the world at the time 
are upset about his choice. So they, he has to go to the point of defending, and, and he writes a book, and he talks about why he translated certain things the way he did, and he has to defend it. And he admits that it's not why he translated the way he did, and that it was inadequate. Because let's think about this. <clears throat> I have had children, I have grandchildren, and I know that my, my child, when they were young, and my grandchildren can feel sorry for all sorts of things, but it doesn't mean they're going to change. You can feel sorry, you know. I can feel sorry that I might hit someone, but it may not stop me, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop hitting them. I don't know if you've ever experienced I know I was the youngest, and my older brother used to have wrestling matches and we'd get in trouble for it. And my brother would always, um, when he was doing that, he would punch me and say he was sorry. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't feel sorry at all about it. He just kept on punching me. <clears throat> he only felt sorry for it when I hit him back. So, repent, meaning feeling sorry, is not an adequate word to understand what Jesus meant when he said, repent. If you look at other sources at the time, the, the Hebrew, um, Hebrew equivalent of this word is the word shuv in Hebrew. And you can find it, I, I recommend you to read, we don't have time tonight, to read Zechariah chapter 1 verses uh, 2 through 6, where it's used multiple times. And that describes how God demands that um, and the people be turn from their sins, not just and that they turn to him. And so it, it implies that there is a change of direction, a change of, of living, a change of being and understanding. And so I want to propose to you that probably a better way to translate this word instead of repent is really just the word change. And what Jesus is really saying, and what John's is saying, is that we must change in the face of the appearing of the kingdom of God. And if we look at how that's demonstrated right after this, what happens in Matthew 4 is that Jesus goes out and he goes by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a freshwater lake, about a, and he's about, he's about a kilometer, half a mile south of Capernaum where the fishing village was. And he sees some guys throwing a cast net. And he says to them, come follow me. And these people, who happen to be Peter and his brother Andrew, we know from John 1 had already met Jesus and been following him for a little while. They drop their, their casting net and they start to follow Jesus. Then he goes a little further and he sees James and John who are mending their nets in a boat and he says to them, follow me. And they drop their nets and they leave their father Zebedee behind and they begin to follow him. Because you see, that behavior illustrates what it means to repent, to, do, to, have metan, to have metanoia, to repentance in your life. It means to recognize that with the coming of Jesus, everything 
it requires everything to change in my life. It means that my relationship with God changes, has to change. My relationship with my family, my relationship with, with my neighbors, everything has to change because of Jesus' coming. It's also basically a call to discipleship. And so when we look at the very last verse of Matthew, the last verses of Matthew, when it talks about how we're called to make disciples, how do we make disciples? We baptize them, which means that they have made a decision to, to become disciples, that they repented. And then we teach them everything that Jesus has commanded so that their life changes. If we look at what happens in Matthew after he calls the disciples, very quickly after that, what do we have? We have Jesus instructing us on what the changed life needs to look like in the Sermon of the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. So I'd argue with you, I'd argue to you, I guess I'm making the argument, that if we want to understand what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, it is to understand that we need to change everything because Jesus changes everything when he comes and when he came. And that means it means that needs to be a change in our life as his followers to become like him. I'm out of time. There's a lot more I could say, but that'll have to do it. So I thank you.